0: Um, going going full-time on angel investing is really also about supporting the entrepreneurs that I want to succeed so part of that is supporting more female entrepreneurs because and for me becoming um, a female angel is really also about kind of supporting the kind of founders that I want to see and so for me that's a great mission that I want to dedicate the vast majority of my life to um, and for me it's it's just as well worth pursuing versus starting a digital health company or starting a B2B software company in the climate space, etc.
1: This is FEMA Business Angel Podcast. Your go-to destination if you're a business angel or would like to get into angel investing and don't know where to start. Or... If you just want to find out how we tick, we're Tina and Katja, both business angels from Berlin. Well, I'm a VC now. We will interview established female business angels about how they got started and how it is going, including all the best tips and tricks. So get ready for some insider stories and personal empowering moments and revelations with these incredible women.
0: Welcome to this journey with us.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's podcast episode. Today, we are talking to Gloria Boyerlein, who is an ex-VC, an ex-operator turned full-time angel investor. She started at WHU and she worked for pretty famous startups such as Cree in Sweden. She lived in London as well. And uh, last year, she invested in more than 10 startups from six different countries. So... We are super excited to have you here. Welcome,
0: Gloria. Thanks for having me.
1: So, tell us a bit more about yourself.
0: Um, so, I studied at WHU. So, from like early, uh, from my early twenties, I was always kind of surrounded by very entrepreneurial minds, by very entrepreneurial people, and I was always fascinated by how they saw the world, how how they had an optimistic outlook on life. Um, But I still, after university, I was still thinking, okay, I need a very, very solid foundation. So I ended up very traditionally going into investment banking. So I joined Morgan Stanley in the Frankfurt office and then spent some time in New York and in London. And ultimately, after four years, I got staffed on a project, which was um, the fundraising of Adyen, the payment provider, back when it was one of the only unicorns in Europe. So that was back in 2014. And while I had worked for really, really boring companies before, um, it was very different working with Adyen. They the sparkle. They, it was, it was, yeah, it was incredible. The founders there are very special, obviously. They built one of the most successful companies uh, in Europe, but they did it in a way that was always very sustainable. They really cared about the culture. They really cared about customers. They always put customers first. They never had proper salespeople because they always wanted to work with the customers to find a solution. And that was so new to me, and I was really, really fascinated by it. And during that during that uh, process, I ended up talking with a fund from Silicon Valley who had just opened up an office in London, uh, which was Technology Crossover Ventures, or TCV, who are now investors in Klana and in Spotify as well, where you used to work at, and in Flixbus, for example, in Germany. And they were like, "Hey, do you want to grab a coffee?" or do you want to So they approached you. Yeah, they like, approached me. They were like looking just like cold reach out they on had, LinkedIn. Yeah, they How had just opened okay. up, they had just opened up uh an office in London. Um so they are originally from from Palo Alto. Um and they were looking for someone to join them to to help them like build out the European team and they had met me on the deal because they had looked at investing in Adyen. Uh, and I was like, oh, "I'm not sure. But I was like, yeah, I'm really intrigued. Like, let's just have a coffee with them. And I just loved the way they looked at companies and the way they thought about, like, what's what it takes to build a sustainable business. And I was really intrigued by it. And so I really stumbled into venture capital and growth equity investing um, without ever interviewing for, any, for anyone else. And I ended up really loving it. Um, and then, like, a year in, Uh, One of my former colleagues at Morgan Stanley, he had joined Index Ventures, one of the first European venture capital funds in the meantime. And he was like, we're looking for someone to help us do growth stage investing. So Series B and beyond. And I thought of you um, because you have done some growth uh, stage investing here. Why don't you join over? And I was really intrigued by the portfolio that Index had assembled over over the years, also by the investors there, and I was really keen to work more closely with companies by going one stage earlier. Um, and so I ended up joining joining Index back in the days when like VC was not really fancy. And everyone was looking at me like, why don't you do private equity? Um, what is it? What's <laughs> in this Index Ventures? Exactly. Literally, no one had ever known about it. Like, to like, be honest,
1: even if you are an outsider... I mean, of course, you know, Sequoia and then probably the second fund that comes to your mind is Index Ventures. It's one of their like tier one top VCs uh, worldwide. I mean, at least in my perspective.
0: Yeah, but, but back then, like for me, <laughs> you never it, heard was, of them. <laughs> it wasn't that special to be honest. Like it was just, for me, it was really a way to work with the best entrepreneurs in Europe, right? Looking at their portfolio back then, like including Deliveroo, uh, like including Deliveroo, and like um, companies such as Criteo, which was like the first ever French unicorn. It was just intriguing to work with these kind of entrepreneurs and really look into like what does it take to really build an outstanding business that's kind of going to last not forever but at least for a couple of generations or a couple of decades. And that was really like why I joined. Like back then, I think VC wasn't really that big. Like I remember, like I was I was the only woman in the team, where we were, like a team of like ten maybe in what, Europe. 2012? Fifteen. 15. Okay. Um fifteen, sixteen. Um and it was just in general, the whole venture ecosystem was just very, very tiny. Like, some of the some of the funds that we know today, like Cherry Ventures, they were just starting up, right? And, like, some of the funds that are really successful now are very, very active in Europe, especially the U.S. funds. They were nowhere to be seen. It was very uncommon for the U.S. funds to ever look into Europe. So it was a very different industry back then, and it wasn't as, like, cool as it probably is today. Um, but it still had that... Um, Had that really interesting um, ability, like, or it really offered me that interesting ability to, at a very young age, spend time with incredible founders and really learn from them, right? And really see the differences. I mean, there is not one recipe which makes you successful as a founder, but that was really something that inspired me. Like, I always say, like, I probably was more of a pessimist uh, back in the days, and I always looked into like what could go wrong. But it helped me to become an optimist because when you are talking to these incredible entrepreneurs, they are imagining the world, how it could be, and like how you can improve it, be it in climate tech or be it in healthcare or whatever. And you kind of, whenever I meet them, I kind of start laughing or I kind of start smiling because they're like, Optimists by nature, yeah. and it Maybe just makes you so a pragmatic positive.
1: person. Just, I mean, having in mind that uh, your background is more finance and operations, so that's just uh, you're, you're a pragmatic brain, and then you meet these people, and
0: yeah, it really, yeah. it really helped me, right? And and for me, investing was this combination of like spending a lot of time with these people, but at the same time also being very analytical especially when you do growth stage investing you still need to look at the KPIs you need you still need to understand like whatever the entrepreneur is telling me is that really what i see in the numbers right it's a different it's a different um it's a different setup when you do angel investing but when you do growth stage investing you still need to be very analytical so for me that was really interesting because i could stay uh analytical and 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 bring that capability that I have to the table, but yeah. at the same time work with really inspiring people. Work with uh, dreamers. Exactly. And yeah. that was really a good combination for me.
1: And have you seen any common patterns in all these companies and the founders that made them succeed and that made them stand out and become unicorns?
0: Yeah, I would say it's, it's very difficult to find completely common patterns, but something that's very... Um, That 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 like occurs very frequently. I think is really this this idea of thinking big, of having a great vision. Like, for example, I I worked very closely with Johannes, the founder of Cree, which I later on also joined. So I was first an investor, and then I joined them to to join the other side of the table. And he's absolutely incredible. I think he joined or he founded or co-founded the company when he was about twenty five years old. And he was a patient himself. He wasn't a doctor. And he was like, look, the healthcare system is broken in Sweden. I have to change that. So what am I going to do about it? And he, so was, he was
1: not an industry insider. He, he just was got obsessed not, about the But
0: he just loved, like he was really obsessed about it. And he just couldn't stop, stop thinking about it. And so he just brought together, or they they teamed up, like four of them, and they just started this company. And back then there was no reimbursement model. But they were like, we don't care. We're just gonna build a great product and we'll find our way around it. And even like five years later, or four years later, when I when I worked there, that vision was still very much alive. And you could tell he wasn't doing it for the money. But he was doing it because he really, really believed that he wanted to change healthcare for the better. And he wanted to do it together with the existing system, rather than with the public payers, rather than building a second healthcare system that's only going to benefit those that have money. Um, And that was really important for me because he could really transport this passion and and i think that's really what a lot of the successful founders have this very intrinsic motivation this passion for whatever problem they're solving so i think that's probably the um the kind of common denominator that i have seen across the best entrepreneurs that I've worked with.
1: So they burn for their idea and they make other people burn for it as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's so hard, right? I mean, I've now also worked at a very early stage uh, company in Berlin, which is more in a B2B SaaS space. And it's really interesting because when you're very early, there are so many ups, but there are also so many downs. Like, I didn't imagine that to be the case when I was still an investor. Obviously you hear about like, oh, how hard it is to be an entrepreneur. But when you're really close to those entrepreneurs, you realize what mental strength it requires to just pull through. Right. So if you are not really a hundred percent bought into like the vision of the company and about uh, bought into like solving this particular problem, you're probably going to start the business. But are you going to really pull through for the next 10 years, regardless of whether you have a bad day or a good day? I think it's really hard to do. <laughs> like it's even hard for me as an as an employee, but like as an as a founder, I at least what I've seen it's even even harder, like much harder.
1: You need a strong conviction, you need to be super obsessed about solving this problem, right?
0: I think so. I mean, yeah. it's it's your life, right? It's not like you can like go home on a Friday evening and not think about it. A lot of them they take it with them at home, at least sometimes, hopefully not every single weekend, but at least sometimes, right? So it becomes their identity as well, right? It's it's not just their job. It's their life. It's their well, it identity. Can happen to you as
1: an employee as well, easily.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I can tell you about that. <laughs> I've experienced that a lot, <laughs> multiple times. But then at least I can like tell myself, "Look, <laughs> you need to like calm down." <laughs> it's weekend. Yes. <laughs> but I think if it's if it's your baby that you like, for so hard for. I think it's even harder because at some point you have dozens or hundreds of employees and you also feel responsible for them, right? And like pulling that through, like it gave me so much respect for that entrepreneurial journey, right? Um, But it's just, it's incredible to see in the most successful founders, uh, like how they're able to pull it through and how they're able to Stay very positive. Like I remember at Korea, I was always seeing like the negative stuff. I was like, "Oh, this part of the unit economics doesn't, in the room. <laughs> doesn't make sense." The person, in the room. <laughs> like, why? Why are we doing this, etc. And Johannes was always like, "Nope." Well, we're, we're just gonna do it. We're gonna pull through. And he, in most cases, he was probably right about it, right? Well, because
1: it's the scale game, probably, and uh, trial and error, I guess. Yeah, it I mean, is. Yeah.
0: And actually, especially when you work uh, with a public good such as healthcare, it's also about pushing the boundaries, right? If you always do like you're being told, and, and it's 100% you're probably never going to really innovate in that space. So for me, the question is always, how gray is it? Is it like whatever you're doing, is it like light gray? So it's not like according to the rules, but it's not really illegal either. Or is it like dark gray? I would prefer not to do the dark gray stuff. But gray is okay. But you, the the light gray one, you sometimes just have to push the boundaries, right? Otherwise, it doesn't work. And like working with these entrepreneurs, that's probably what I've learned, right? It's it's not my nature. It's not what I'm like naturally inclined to do, but they taught me to like really be a. Optimist, yeah. so it changed, <laughs> and you. yeah, definitely.
1: So it's about the shades of gray. This podcast is turning and it is taking an interesting <laughs> turn. <laughs> I think what's interesting in your case is that you started really like at the later stage, companies like looking at them as a consultant and then as an investor, and then you moved to a work on as an operator to the startups and also if i'm not wrong you were going like right like so this down like the stage so early and early and earlier and now you uh you've, you've started to angel invest um on the side just like a little hobby so you've done over 10 angel investments in just one year i don't know during your lunch break so at <laughs> night <laughs> coffee breaks and um so you're becoming a full-time angel investor. I think that's an interesting journey because in some cases it starts the other way around many, many times, or it's somewhere in between, or if you're an early stage person, you will stay and you will remain an early stage person. So I think that this, is, this is a really interesting journey. Yeah,
0: I think late stage was just like... What I was good at, I would say, like, or my, which fitted best my experience as an investment banker, right? The natural inclination is to start later stage. Um, But then I realized what I really enjoy the most. Is working with these entrepreneurs and like really being fairly hands on and like helping them solve very specific problems. And in a later stage, you can't really do that as much. And so while I was like, okay, I, I I'm probably good at this very late stage stuff. What I really enjoy doing and what I can imagine doing long term is really working very very closely with um, entrepreneurs. And that's why when I left VC. I was initially starting to angel invest in um, my friends' companies. So a couple of friends like were asking me for advice because I either knew the space they were starting up in or I could help them with like negotiating term sheets and, and tell them, okay, this is of very course, common and it's not. Yeah. right. So And I was like, hmm, why don't I just invest very small tickets? I initially started with 5K tickets, like very, very, very tiny because I wasn't really sure and obviously angel investing is pretty risky. I mean, what are the chances that that company is going to become successful, right? So I really did it on the side. I think I did two investments in 2018 and like one in 2019 um, because I was really like just like supporting uh, um, friends of mine. And then um, in 2020, when I also moved to Berlin, I started kind of connecting with some of the angels over here. And then like one of them literally called me up of a Christmas, and he was like, oh, yeah, I have a new angel deal for you, but it's not like you think I'm leaving my job and I'm starting a company. Would you be interested in investing? So that was the first time where I didn't invest in, like, a close friend of mine, but it just randomly like invested in it or blindly invested in it and it turned but out if you
1: built a bit of a reputation.
0: Yeah I yeah. did because um obviously it's it's fairly unique to have both the operator experience as well as the investing experience. And then there are also not a lot of female angels um in general in the exactly, that's why term, we are right? doing this
1: podcast. Exactly. Like we want basically we want to um, give female business angels like a stage and a voice and um Kind of. Yeah. Start the movement. And I got I got of.
0: kind kind of upset that there just weren't a lot of female angels. And I was like, okay, I have some money, not a lot, but I have some money that I can put aside, that I can risk. And I have these opportunities that come to me literally initially it was like they were coming to me. And then that kind of evolved. Like the next time like a friend of mine was a VC of like a VC friend of mine was looking in a particular space. And I was like, oh, I remember there was a company, there's a guy that used to work for a company that I was on the board of as a VC and he's starting something in this space. And um, why don't I just connect you? And that fund was 0.9 capital and they ended up investing in that company, which is Soda Data, which is like in a data monitoring space. Um, and so that's kind of how it evolved. And initially it was kind of really serendipity, like just connecting people and then like investing a little bit as well. But then it, I realized that the more I built up a network of angels and of other VCs, the more really good deal flow I got. And to be honest, like I got really lucky because a lot of the deal flow was kind of pre-qualified. So it's not like I'm investing in 1% of the stuff that I'm looking at, but it's more like I'm investing in a relatively large number of companies that I that I look at because they already come pre-qualified, either because a VC is investing or and that I they trust or another angel like you guys are investing, and I trust them as well, so that helped me a lot to build up um angel investing parallel to um my full time job at back
1: it's uh, it's pretty challenging to to, to juggle both, isn't it?
0: It is, but i got I think I got How lucky did you prioritize it? I got lucky in the sense of like yeah the the so I would say if, if you're thinking about angel investing, they're basically. <laughs> There are basically four phases, right? One is finding that investment. One is due diligence. The th- a third one is um, to win the deal. And the fourth one is to help the companies. And I got lucky because the first two, I probably had an um, unfair advantage and a sense of like through my VC contacts and through also my network, which I which I accumulated as a VC, I Saw quite a few deals um, that were already pre-qualified, pre- pre- as I said. Um, so that was good. The diligence is also a little bit quicker for me because I've looked at hundreds and thousands of companies as a professional VC. So I think I can be a little bit faster in like um, doing the due diligence. And what I do a lot is also sharing it with other angels and sharing it with other VCs and get their um, input on uh, on it. So that, I think I have kind of an unfair competitive advantage. So most of the time I can then spend on winning the deals and um, really helping the portfolio companies. So winning the deals um, has luckily been fairly easy for me. Combination of like me knowing the, the lead investor, but also me not understanding the space in the case of like digital health or me being German, and they are looking to move into Germany soon, etc. So there's like different, different so you reasons for uh, it. So
1: had a competitive advantage. Yeah, I mean, given your background, you don't really have to sell yourself. Yeah,
0: or actually. maybe even man- yeah. sometimes it's really cool to see that entrepreneurs are really looking to add a female angel on the cap table. And to be honest, they're just not a lot, especially when you invest in B2B sales versus consumer. And so that also got me onto the cup table sometimes. So those three parts were fairly time insensitive, I would say, or not very intense. The the ones that's now taking more and more time is really working with the portfolio companies and helping them. And that has been good until I think probably six months ago because I didn't have a lot of companies historically and some of them have already raised Series A or Series B. So they're like they already have other investors around the table that can also help them. But now that I've invested into 10 companies over the last like 11 months, very ambitious. Um, that's a little bit different, right? So I can definitely see that Oh, I had to make a decision. Do I want to continue doing it on the side kind of just as a hobby or do I want to do it full time because I can't continue at this pace as a hobby? Um, and so that's why I made the decision to to go full time ultimately.
1: Because, uh, so what would, would you agree that as an angel you should support your startups until they have raised the Series A, more or less? Or is there like a general rule?
0: There's no general rule, I would say. It really depends on what they need help on. But it's definitely the case that, especially at BRICI, they need a lot more hold, uh, hand holding especially when you are investing in entrepreneurs that ha- that are doing it for the first time and that are fairly young. Um, there's definitely a lot more health holding required, which is also why I haven't invested a lot at the pre-seed stage. I typically invest at like seed stage where they already have a product. Most of the time they do not have revenue or okay, I think usually they don't have revenue, Um, but they have a product, so they don't require as much hand-holding anymore. Or there's serial entrepreneurs who've done it before, so they also don't need as much hand-holding. After that, for me, I always tell the companies that I invest in, I always tell them, like, I'm a pool angel. Like, pull me in whenever you think, I'm needed. It could be like intros to a VC, could be interest to a customer, uh, to a partner. Maybe you want to have like um, um, a strategic discussion with me, etc. Pull me in. I'm not going to be a push angel. Like I'm not going to be the one who's like, please send me um, an, an update, update every month, month or I want to look into the numbers in detail, etc. For me, whenever I invest, I trust you and I trust that when things are going downhill, you will let me know or I will I will find out soon enough. Let's put it like that. But that's also it's it's part of it it's normal. Like When when you're an angel master, you have to understand not everything is always going going super, super well, right? So you need to be super supportive. But like being the one who gets very nervous and like ask a lot of questions all the time, that's not very supportive because that's not what they need. They need a lot of support then and not like someone who like nags them every month with like numbers and stuff. So I want to be more the, the pull angel rather than the push angel and then see like, okay, how can I... How can I help? Like, what are the introductions that could be really meaningful for you? Um, And that's kind of how I'm trying to do it. And that's so far worked out quite nicely. But that doesn't prevent me from still being helpful at later stages. So one of my companies just raised a Series B. um, And obviously they're way past Series A. But I just made two introductions to potential customers because also because they want to move into the German market and I can be helpful there because I'm the only German angel on the cup table. And so it doesn't like, I wouldn't say, okay, once they raise Series A, I'm no longer talking to them. But it's a different type of advice. It's a different type of help because they usually already have the different team members, which... They, which which help them with like very specific stuff, such as I don't know setting up a finance function or like dealing with GDPR documents and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What I'm asking myself is, I mean, this is my personal dilemma as well. Like, how many angel investments can you physically, as a <laughs> is it like one woman show, support? I mean, I guess I'm I'm not a bush angel either. So I'm not micromanaging or, I mean, I'm not the main investor. It's not my business. So I just want to support and I'm super honored to be on the journey with the amazing entrepreneurs and, um, yeah, just to help and to cheer from the sidelines and also to be hands-on if they need me. But, uh, yeah, that's the question I'm trying to solve for myself. Like, how, how active can you be? involved and supportive with how many companies.
0: For me, there are basically yeah. more or less two models, right? One model is what I've done, which is like very small tickets. I could never lead around, etc. Um, And then like distributing it a little bit to diversify, really. And then I'll be very clear upfront what I can help with, right? I'm not going to be the one who's going to sit down with you and talking about the a tech architecture or anything like that, like I could probably introduce you to one or two people that can help you there, but I'm not going to be the person. I'm also not going to be the person who's going to help you with your marketing strategy. I might have some interesting ideas, but I'm definitely not gonna, I'm not the marketing expert for sure. Um, so, and I think as long as you are upfront about it, and as long as you know kind of what you're good at and what you're probably not as good at, um, and ideally, you have people around you in your network that can help you with the stuff that you're not as good at. Um, I think it's it it makes sense to invest very small tickets, but then have a couple more of those. The other option which you can go down or which you can do is you just, um, you are a very big angel. You can lead rounds. You are you're investing easily 100, 200, 300K. In a lot of cases, precede. Um, and you get a disproportional amount um off the company, sometimes at like three million valuation, four million valuation, etc. But then I think if you go down that route, then you can only do, I don't know, five comp- investments a year or three investments a year, because you need to spend a lot more time on it. Because you are the main investor in that in that round, and you're maybe like Fifty percent of the cap <laughs> yeah. of, that, of that round, right, or twenty percent in the cap table. Then you obviously need to set up a very different structure. You probably also need a little bit more of a professional team around you that can really help the. Um, the portfolio companies—they're more like pre-seed funds, but some of them are like—it's their, it's only their own money. So I would still consider them like an angel. Yeah, and, but like that's a very angels. different, exactly. Yeah. But that's a very different kind of setup. And I think you need to understand who you are, and then you can also adjust your number of investments accordingly.
1: And I guess you also have to be prepared to. Juggle the legal stuff. So you have to sign things, you have to vote for some things, you have to give your input on things, and sometimes you need a power of attorney. I don't know. I mean, you've invested in so many countries, so I'm not sure if Germany is the most bureaucratic case.
0: Um <laughs> Germany is by far the most <laughs> bureaucratic case. Not just wiring <laughs> the money and making a couple of intros. It's it's pretty crazy. Like going yeah. to the notary every time you make an equity investment is something it is unheard of in any other countries. It's actually France is also pretty tricky, where you like have to sign off a lot of like shareholder like resolutions and stuff like that. And Belgium, where I also have one investment, is also not the easiest one in terms of like all the documents you have to sign but germany is by far Life made easy the easy in worst. Worst. europe yeah. <laughs> by far <laughs> the worst and like luckily yeah. enough i've got i've got some investments also in the us I like it's basically nothing. Sometimes I like, don't even know like what the share price of the new round is because I don't really get the docs of the of the new round. Like unless I obviously ask ask from the founders. But Probably it's not very all digital common. On
1: angel it's all
0: digital yeah. actually on Carter. Yeah. Most of it is on Carter. So like it's it's very digital. Like I maybe send one piece of paper every year and that's about it. So I think if I had just done German angel investments. I don't think I could have handled it. It would have been way too much. But I've only only got, I think, four um German angel investments. So that's fairly fairly good and fairly good to handle. But yeah, Germany is by far okay. the worst when it comes to administrative hassles. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'm with you. I'm I think I'm reaching my bureaucratic like yeah endpoint. <laughs> <So.
0: laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah I mean it's still very rewarding. So what would you say what what is the what is the best thing for you about angel investing? Getting
0: to work with incredible founders and getting to dream about the future that they can build um, or we can all build together. As just as I said before it just makes me a, an internal optimist um to look into what kind of solutions like companies or entrepreneurs out there are building. For example, I recently invested a couple of months ago, I invested in this company called Fabric Nano, who is looking to find a way, a different way based on cells, to produce plastics. Because we are like throwing away so much plastic all the time. And I, whenever I go to the grocery store, I'm like I don't know it's how we can plastic. get rid of all the plastic yeah. around wrapped around um all our vegetables and all of our fruit etc right and it's a big mission they found they they found a way to do it but the question is can you make it commercially viable so that it makes sense for FMCG companies to really wrap their um Their their fruit or the packet, their their, their, vegetables, uh, vegetables, et cetera, differently, right? And when you talk to these kind of founders, you're like, huh, this is really cool. Like, you are making sure that the world will still we'll be around yeah. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a couple of years yeah. right and for me like working with these kind of entrepreneurs and really getting inspired by them on a daily basis in very different ways right sometimes it's just because they're really kind sometimes it's because they are the big visionaries et cetera, that's probably been the best of uh, for me uh, for angel investing
1: and if you were not an angel investor what would you be?
0: <laughs> that is a really, really hard part. I would probably start my own company. Um, so that's what I've been like, why I went into uh, operator role initially. Uh, and what I've been like toying with for quite a long time. Um, but what I realized was really that there is nothing I'm as passionate about as actually angel investing, so for me going full time on angel investing is kind of being an entrepreneur <laughs> in, in my own right, but as an angel, right. But otherwise, I would probably have looked for another big problem to solve, and basically gone into angel investing. For me, here it's really about um, going going full time on angel investing. It's really also about supporting the entrepreneurs that I want to succeed. So part of that is supporting more female entrepreneurs because. I think definitely as a female angel, I'm more uh, I'm more gravitating towards female entrepreneurs than a male angel would. And I think you also had a stat. Um, I think about a month ago that in uh, Germany female angels have 16 or 17 percent of female co-founders in their portfolio versus for male angels is only about six or seven no, percent. So there's I a huge discrepancy. Yeah. And for me, becoming um, a female angel is really also about kind of supporting the kind of founders that I want to see. And so for me, that's a great mission that I want to dedicate the vast majority of my life to. Um, and for me, it's it's just as well worth pursuing versus starting a digital health company or starting a B2B software company in the climate space, et cetera. Because I can be basically a multiplier. I'm I'm very I'm a very small contributor, but at least I can contribute to mm-hmm. like a lot of different causes. And for me that's like I realize for me that's just as um interesting as starting a company myself.
1: What is the percentage of female founders um, that you have in your portfolio on your deal flow?
0: Um, So I try, so for me, I'm not a big fan of quotas, but I always say I try to have a unbiased top of the funnel. So... For me, it doesn't matter whether it's about hiring or whether it's about investing. I want to make sure that there is no bias at the top of my funnel. So whatever I'm, whoever I'm interviewing or whoever I'm seeing or whoever I'm talking to for investment. Mm -hmm. So that's really important for me. So I've been definitely trying to make an effort to tap into the communities where like female investors are. And luckily enough, they all know each other. Or a lot of them know each other. So once you are invested in a couple, they make introductions to other female entrepreneurs. So I've always made an effort to basically have a balanced top of the funnel. And I'm almost there. I'm like, I think I'm at 45% or so of the teams that I look at have at least one female co-founder. Um, when it comes to actually investing, for me, it's really about like investing in the best teams, right? Um, obviously, there's still a small bias to towards, towards uh, female entrepreneurs, but I'm not a charity. I want to invest in the best companies because I think if you invest in the best companies, that then allows you to put more money also into the future entrepreneurs, right? So, so far, it's about a third of my portfolio companies have a have a female co-founder, which is a lot higher than, than it usually is. And so I'm quite happy about it. It could still get a little bit better. Um, but yeah, so far it's a third, but it's also because the vast majority of my portfolio companies are B2B SaaS, so except for two companies, all of them are in B2B SaaS. Um, And so in B2B SaaS, there's just so few, there's just so few female founders. So if there were a higher, if there was a higher percentage of female founders in B2B SaaS, so please please reach out, that number might have been slightly higher. But because I don't do consumer or don't do a lot of consumer, I think that's why it's still only a third.
1: What would you say are some countries doing better in regards to female founders and female executives compared to the others?
0: I mean, the Nordics, for sure. At Cree, we had, I think we were 53% female um, employees and we were about a third to 40% um female executives or female team leaders um vp level etc so we were doing exceptionally well which is also because it was it's so normal for women in the nordics to just work i mean you've probably seen it as spotify yeah, as well it's very easy to manage child support it's very also common for you to go home at 4:30 or 5 pick up your child cook dinner bring them to bed and then afterwards work for another two or three or four hours, which I think is just not as common in Germany yet. I think it starts to change with COVID as well and with like more flexibility. But in in Sweden, um, that was just very common to have women that are part of the workforce and that really leaders in a company. When I moved back to Germany, I was like, oh God, what is happening here? I'm I'm the only woman in the room again.
1: Yeah, I mean, back
0: we were actually doing a fairly good job. We really made sure, I think, our fourth employee or so was a woman. Then there was another one that joined with me and then I joined. So out of the first 10 employees, we were like three women, I would say. So it wasn't too bad. We really made a conscious effort to, to change that. Um, but yeah, but like the whole ecosystem in Germany is very male, right? Um, there's hardly any female like VC on a partner level or check writing level. Um, there is no um, female founder who has started a unicorn in Germany, which is also crazy because I think we have over 20 unicorns. I think there's actually no company founded by a woman that's probably worth, no tech company that's probably worth more than 500 million. I can not really, <laughs> I can really only think of one maybe, which is like RatePay, mm. founded by Miriam Wohlfahrt, which is now PE owned. So depending on how you count, that might be one. But there's just not a lot of. Women in the ecosystem, it it starts to change, and now I'm like making a conscious conscious effort and like getting to know them. But when you really look at the scale ups in Berlin, there's just not a lot of um, female leaders. Um, but it, I'm, I'm really, I'm really pleased to see that more and more VCs, but also founders really make a conscious effort across everything, right? Across like a lot of founders ask me like, hey, do you know any other female angels? Like we're totally oversubscribed, but I'm I'm really open to have an um additional female angels on the cap have a more table. Cap table Exactly. Yeah. They mm. really care about it. Like I think five years ago no one really cared. I mean that question I've never got asked as a VC, I can tell you that. Um It's definitely something that founders are asking me about, like, how can we get the first female um, employees if they don't have anyone in the founding team? Um, And it's definitely also something that VCs care about now, where they're really trying to find um, female investors um, to add to their team. Obviously, there is still a little bit of like a talent gap where there are not a lot of uh, women with investing experience, full stop, Like or like with more than five years of investing experience. And then um, a lot of the, the women that are out there, like me, they're like, hey, I'm already doing angel investing. I'm already doing that full time. Why would I go and join a fund where I have certain limitations as to what I can invest in, how I can invest, etc. So when I'm talking to like headhunters or like people I know that, Like in those funds, they're like, look, we're really trying hard to find people, um, but we just can't. But at least they're trying. I think five years ago, no one really cared as much. Um, And so I think that's changed dramatically.
1: Yeah I also I also can see the change I mean all these WhatsApp groups we have here VC ladies and uh, I mean there I, I don't know how many are on the partner level but uh, there are certainly quite a few on the associate and principal level. so the junior talent is there and all the CVs that are being sent around and uh, that's why we also started this podcast because we were when we started angel investing a couple of years ago we wanted to find podcast about female business angels and we could not find one so we decided to create uh, this movement and kind of inspire more ladies to get into it and so yeah now we're getting to the final podcast question which would be what advice would you give to someone who wants to get into angel investing someone who maybe is not coming from the vc or I mean, it's not always such an organic story like yours is. So what uh, do you recommend?
0: First of all, get started. <laughs> I think a lot of people are thinking about it, but then they always find excuses why not to do it. Most of the key, mo- most of the time, it's really because they are afraid that they are not good at it, etc. So, first of all, get started. What's then really important is define a budget. Define like how much you want to invest over the next year, over the next two or three years. Um, into angel investing and try to make at least five if possible 10 angel investments with that money because you need to diversify to some extent um, because angel investing is still really really risky Um, so do that don't be afraid like now these days like it's super common to invest 10k um, or 15K or even 5K work sometimes. So don't be afraid that like, like, you are getting rejected because you can't invest 50K. Don't worry about it. If you bring um, a clear value proposition to the table, they will accept you typically. Then the third part is... Think about your value proposition. What can you bring to the table? What's unique about you? Like, what is your skill set? Maybe what's where do you have a really strong network? Like, where can you really help support? And try to make that clear to everyone. And also try to pick um, sectors that you invest in where this value proposition is going to be um, unique or a clear clear value add. So that's what I, th- I would I would say. And then lastly. I would say invest with others. So initially, team up with other people that um, that are angel investors. That I've done it multiple times before. Talk to them a lot. Talk to them about why they decided to um, either invest or not invest. Maybe even join calls with them to really get an understanding, like how does due diligence work? Like what are the types of questions? What are the hot spaces as well? And then just. Talk to a lot of people. I think it's the same for VCs, to be honest, right? It's not about like, you don't get perfect deal flow initially. It's really about seeing a lot of entrepreneurs. So at some point it becomes a relative decision, right? It's very hard to make absolute decisions and be like, this is the only entrepreneur I've ever met in my whole life (laughs) or in that space at least. Mm -hmm. So now should I invest or not? They're very hard to do. Some people are probably good at this. I'm not. Uh, but it's all about like seeing patterns and talking to a lot of people in similar spaces and then seeing okay, this guy or this girl has thought it through. They really have unique insights versus these people, they've probably only done it because they heard it's a big market and that's why they're going into it, right? They're a nice deck. Yeah, but it's, it's really the yeah. case. Once you are like, talk to a couple of dozen companies, you get a really good sense of like, Who really understands the space and who really goes or like started something in the space with the right intentions behind it? Separate apples from oranges, (laughs) exactly. A bit better, and I think it's it's so like really team up with others, do calls together, um, and, and try to learn from like how they're doing it. I'm trying to do it more and more now, also with friends, where I'm like. You have really valuable experience. You have been an operator for the past five or 10 years. You need to do angel investing. So I pulled them in to calls and now they're like, they're starting to get into it, uh, which I'm really excited about. And I really, I really like that. And that's what I would definitely recommend everyone doing.
1: That's amazing. I'm going to recap your advices. So get started. That's the first one. Define a budget. Make at least five to 10 angel investments. Define your USP and invest with others so get your gang start talking to the people dive into the ecosystem remember it's a risky investment but if you want to get started and if you don't know anyone just reach out to us on instagram or on linkedin and yeah if you're a female business angel who wants to do the first deal we'll yeah we'll drag you in thank you thank you so much thanks Gloria.